Hey, you're listening to the audio version of Well Read with Justin Chapman. If you'd like to watch the video version, please go to youtube.com backslash C backslash Justin Chapman 15 or just search for Well Read with Justin Chapman in the YouTube search bar. Learn more at justindouglaschapman.com. Enjoy the show. Hi there. Welcome to Well Read with Justin Chapman. Thanks for being here. Happy New Year. Let's hope 2022 was better than 2021 and 2020. I know we're all frustrated and tired of this pandemic, but we've all got to do our part a little longer and continue to be vigilant. I know many of us parents with young children are closely watching for news of an effective vaccine so we can resume some semblance of normalcy. This limbo period is very challenging. Also in the challenging department, the economy. Though things aren't as bad as many people seem to believe, or at least it's perfectly understandable why the economy has been experiencing disruptions. Inflation is rising, prices are going up, yes, but that's completely expected after a massive societal upheaval caused by something like the pandemic. Compared to major disruptions to consumer prices over the past 100 years, from events such as the two world wars, the Great Depression, the oil crisis of the 70s, etc., Last month's 6.8% inflation rate is actually pretty mild. Meanwhile, Americans' average wages are the highest they've ever been been at $31 per hour, more than 4.8% this time last year. With inflation, of course, that's actually a slight reduction in buying power. But that's all the more reason companies need to raise their wages and the government needs to raise the minimum wage. $15 an hour isn't even going to cut it anymore in most cities, let alone $7.25. Also in the challenging department, the continuing political divide down the middle of the United States. That gulf is only going to get wider as we get closer to the midterms later this year. And after that, it's full speed ahead to the 2024 presidential election, which is going to be an unprecedented and volatile experience. We're going to see disinformation on a scale that will make the last couple of years seem positively tame. This disinformation divide we're experiencing with both sides of the country and indeed the world living in at least two completely separate realities is something I think we're going to be dealing with for the rest of our lives. I don't see any way out of it. If there's any one person who is responsible for this state of disinformation, or at least any one person who has the power to do something about it, it's Rupert Murdoch. And he certainly does not get enough credit or blame for that. But whether you're on the right or the left, I think it's it's safe to say that we can all agree we live in an age of disinformation. Both sides think the other side is delusional. So today we're going to go back to a simpler time, the Cold War. Obviously, I say that in jest because disinformation was synonymous with the Cold War. Although that was disinformation between two competing superpowers, not disinformation within one superpower between two sides of its own people. Specifically, we're going to look at a cultural aspect of the Cold War the original James Bond novels, written by Ian Fleming in the 1950s and 60s. Whether or not you like the films, some of which can be corny at times, the books are in a class all to themselves. If you never read them or it's been a while, I highly encourage you to go back and read them all over again or read them for the first time. There are 14 Bond books by Fleming and then many more written by others after his death in 1964. But those 14, Casino Royale, Live and Let Die, Moonraker, Diamonds Are Forever, From Russia With Love, Dr. No, Goldfinger, 
For Your Eyes Only, which is a collection of short stories, Thunderball, The Spy Who Loved Me, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, You Only Live Twice, The Man with the Golden Gun, and Octopussy in the Living Daylights, which is another collection of short stories, are really fun, well-written, original, suspenseful potboilers and thrillers. He is a fantastic adventure writer, if nothing else. There's no tongue-in-cheek cornball humor like in some of the movies. I'm not big into fiction or escapism for that matter, but I really, really enjoyed these novels. I like the international jet setting, probably largely because I've been stuck at home for two years. I like the originality of the villains such as Goldfinger and Dr. No and Blofeld. I like the way the books made people view the Cold War differently. By the way, Fleming has a couple of other non-Bond, non-fiction books as well. Diamond Smugglers, Thrilling Cities, and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which he wrote for his son Casper who sadly committed suicide when he was 23. All of those books are worth a read as well. An interesting thing about the Bond books is that they didn't really take off in popularity until President John F. Kennedy listed From Russia With Love in his top 100 favorite books. It was gangbusters after that. Another interesting Kennedy-related rumor is that both JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald were reading James Bond books the night before the assassination. So both sides of the Cold War were captivated by these books. Today, we're going to be speaking with Ian Fleming's biographer, Andrew Lysett. He wrote an excellent exploration of Fleming's life in 1995, and he'll join us to break that down. Before that, let's take a look now at snapshots of international, national, and California news. In international news, hundreds of thousands of Russian forces are now surrounding Ukraine on three sides, with all signs pointing to an invasion in the coming weeks. It's not guaranteed, of course. The only two things that make me think Putin won't invade is, one, the recent uprising in Kazakhstan, in which Kazakhstan's president asked Russia for military support to help quell the uprising, thereby diverting attention away from Ukraine. And two, if Putin really wanted to invade, wouldn't he prepare in secret instead of amassing troops and equipment out in the open? It seems more like he's putting to work that old playbook, create a crisis, and offer to solve it after extracting concessions from the West. In some ways, the Cold War never ended. In national news, the January 6th committee in the House is investigating whether former President Donald Trump oversaw a criminal conspiracy that connected the White House's efforts to prevent the certification of Joe Biden's electoral college votes with the insurrection at the Capitol. The next few months will be critical for this committee because it is widely believed that Republicans will win back the House in November, and they will certainly shut that committee down on day one in early January 2023, or drastically change its mission. In California news, lawmakers have introduced a universal health care plan, which if passed would be the first in the country to provide health services to every resident. The plan would be paid for by new taxes on wealthy individuals and businesses, and thus would have to be approved by California voters at the ballot box. And for local Pasadena news, check out my other show, News Wrap Local with Justin Chapman, which airs on Pasadena Media's TV channels, streaming apps, and YouTube every third Friday of the month at 5 p.m. Pacific. Let's patch in our guest, author Andrew Lysett, biographer and journalist who wrote an excellent book about Ian Fleming, who was, of course, the author of the original James Bond novels in the 50s and 60s. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to be here. 
Andrew is also the author of biographies about Rudyard Kipling, Dylan Thomas, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Muammar Gaddafi, and Wilkie Collins. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and the Royal Geographical Society. So, Andrew, your Ian Fleming book came out in the mid-90s. How did you come to write about him? Did, did you know some of the characters from his life, uh, or were you a fan of the books and writing from the outside in? Um, yeah, just sort of different things go into making a book. Um uh, I was a fan of the books. I was also a journalist, which um, kind of gave me an entree into some of uh, Ian Fleming's um, ways. And, and actually, I particularly, I, I worked for the Sunday Times where, where he worked. Uh, when I started out, I don't think I really knew too many of the people involved, but I got to know them. And uh, you know, some of them became actually pretty good friends, you know, like um, uh Ian Fleming's stepdaughter, Fionn Morgan, um, you know, was very helpful to me. And, uh, you know, there was there was still a lot of people around who knew Ian when I started out writing, which was actually in the 1990s. Mm. And Fleming died very young, actually, um, in the 60s. And so there was still a lot of his colleagues and stuff around. One, Another one was um, a chap called Robert Parling, with whom he worked uh, in different sort of uh, areas uh, in naval intelligence and in journalism, and was a was a a good friend, and you know he was still around when I when I was working. So, um, you know there were different inputs, if you like. Mm-hmm. And and give us a very brief bio of Ian Fleming. Every, everyone knows about James Bond, but I'm not sure everyone really knows all that much about Bond's creator, who is fascinating in his own right. Uh, so, can you give us a very brief outline of his life? Indeed. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, the man who created James Bond has kind of got to be uh, exciting in his own right and fascinating in his own right. Um, and indeed, that is the case because um, he was born into what you might call a very privileged family. Um, his uh, well, his grandfather actually set up um, a bank, uh, a mer- what we call in Britain a merchant bank. And um, that was very successful. I mean, it lasted right through the 20th century until it was sold to Chase Manhattan at some inordinate sum, right at kind of the cusp of the 21st century. Um, and uh, so it was very moneyed background that, that Fleming came from. Um, his father died in the First World War, and that was a bit of a, that was a great shock to the whole immediate family. Um, he had a a rather lively uh, mother, Eve, um, who sort of tried to maintain the family tradition. She was um, quite flamboyant and she uh, sort of liked, she liked the bohemian life, perhaps more than the, the banker's life. Um, but uh, she brought up four, four sons, basically. Uh, Ian had three sons of whom he was, of which he was the second. Ian was a bit of a wayward uh, adolescent, and he was sent to a, um, a kind of strange finishing school uh, for rich people who, rich young boys who didn't really fit in, and that was in Kitzbühel in Austria. And that was the sort of a, the making of, of Ian Fleming. Um, he, um, he sort of, he'd been in a traditional English public school, which is actually a private school, confusingly, and, uh, you know, Eton, which is well, probably, you know, very widely known as the, the, 
the the leading um, school in in Britain in that that sphere. Anyway, um, he hadn't liked it there particularly. He he went to Kitzbühel and found himself found you know he liked climbing the mountains. He liked the Austrian girls that he met there, um, and he learned languages. And he was going to sort of follow uh, initially and become a diplomat. Um, but he was a bit feckless, you might put put it. I mean, he didn't do too badly, but uh, he didn't qualify to uh, in the exam to become a diplomat. So uh, he then became a journalist. Uh, and that was quite an interesting um, period in his life when he was uh, traveling um, as a sort of correspondent for Reuters, Reuters news agency, which... Um, you know, which he joined, and um, it was very formative, actually, because you know he learnt he learnt his sort of pithy style of writing there. I won't go into too much of that at the moment. Um, he was going to be sent to um, Shanghai as uh, uh, deputy to the um, bureau chief there, but he decided he wasn't getting enough money, and basically he wanted to get back get into the the city of London, where you know his family had made money, so. He um, decided that he would become a stockbroker, and he wasn't good at that, and he was called the world's worst stockbroker. But luckily for him, along came the Second World War, and he got plucked from being a stockbroker uh, and was made a personal assistant to the director of naval intelligence. And that was the sort of making of him. Um, he sort of it had always been something on his back that his father had been this great figure, military figure in the First World War. Ian got into uniform, and there's a sort of famous picture of him uh, in um, in his sort of naval uniform. Uh, and um, he really sort of came into his own, as, as I said, actually. Um, he, he was right-hand man to the director of naval intelligence. Now, that may not sound, you know, Great, but in those days, naval intelligence was up there with MI6 because Britain was a still a big naval power, and they had sort of agents. The um, the NID, Naval Intelligence Division, had agents in all the ports and stuff like that. But it was a bit more than that. Um, it was a sort of one of the the arms of the secret services. And Ian Fleming got to um, liaise with all the sort of top people in the British Secret Services. And, you know, he did the sort of conventional, not so conventional things, because he was right at the top of his game. I mean, he 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 liaised with Bletchley Park, where, you know, they were cracking the Enigma mm -hmm. uh, code and the Enigma machines, the Germans' um, uh, machines, which were supposed to be foolproof. And that sort of thing, he got that information. Um, he was a bit of a... Sort of, you could put it as a backroom boy. He, I mean, he basically spent his his war years in the Admiralty. He did have some interesting exploits, which I could go into. But um, he decided at the end of the war that, as he put it, he was going to write the spy novel to end all spy novels. And he um, was at the same time offered a fairly, well, a rather wonderful job um, as foreign manager of the Sunday Times newspaper, which is, you know, one of the top newspapers in Britain. Mm -hmm. um, he took that up and he demanded that he should have uh, a two-month holiday each year. And he had this, during the war, during the Second World War, he'd uh, 
been sent to Jamaica to participate in a sort of um, Anglo-American naval conference. And he'd fallen in love with that island. And he decided that he was going to go and live there. So after the war, as well as sort of taking up this job with um, the Sunday Times, he also um, uh, bought some land in the north coast of Jamaica and he was uh, um, he, he built himself a house there. At the same time, as I've already mentioned, he was thinking, beginning to think about this spy novel to end all spy novels. Well, his time was sort of taken up with his house, with his job. He had a, a sort of difficult uh, relationship with a, with a woman who eventually became his wife in 1952. She was married to the um, boss of the Daily Mail newspaper, Anne Rothermere, but he'd known her before that. And um, so eventually in 1952, he married her uh, in Jamaica, in fact. And um, uh, he said that, you know, this was his line, a typical sort of Fleming line, that to take his mind off the sort of impending marriage because he'd resisted uh, um, marriage for something like, uh, gosh, what was it? Yeah, well over 40 years. Um, and uh, that he was actually now going to write uh, this novel. So he he knocked it off. I mean, I've worked out that it, you know, it took him less than two months to write Casino Royale in Jamaica in 1952, and it was published in 1953. Thereafter, he wrote... Uh, you know, every year he wrote a um, uh, a James Bond novel, mm-hmm. uh, and they was they were successful. But it it sort of it was only uh, sort of at the end of the decade. We're talking about the fifties, uh, and um, you know that he they really took off, uh, and um, you know they got popular in America because. Uh, um, President Kennedy uh, said that um, From Russia with Love was one of his fa- top 10 favorite novels. Mm-hmm. And um, then, of course, along, you know, been trying, Fleming had been trying to get uh, his novels um, filmed for quite some time. He, he had contacts and stuff. But it was only when um, uh, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman came along uh, in 1962 and decided that they were going to make. Um, the, the first uh, James James Bond film, and they they chose Doctor No. That was the one that they were going to do, um, and so you know that's obviously increased uh, the profile of uh, of Ian Fleming and his books. But unfortunately, he died uh, only a couple of years later in in 1964, and he was only uh, 56, which is very young. It, his relationship with his mother, who was kind of a domineering type, right? How did that shape his later relationships with women and, and his his wife? It seemed like he had a, a pretty tumultuous relationship with his wife. Yeah. Um, yeah, his mother was indeed a pretty domineering type. Um, difficult to know. And, you know, she was a rather beautiful woman and uh, she had a lot of... Um, uh, fans, a lot of male friends. Um, she had an illegitimate child who, uh, by the painter Augustus John, who was um, became uh, Ian Fleming's um, half sister. She was called Amaryllis, um, and uh, somehow uh, his mother 
always had this idea of you know her absent father and she wanted uh her boys four of them uh to sort of live up to that and um so she made it you know it was sort of par for the course in some ways for for those days uh she she kind of um engineered uh ian's career and she it was who sort of decided that he would pull out of Eton and go to this place uh, uh, in Kitzbühel in Austria. She then um, prevailed on a friend of hers who was head of Reuters news agency to give Ian a job. Uh, she was probably also involved in getting him his job in, in naval intelligence. And um, in the meantime, she uh, I mean, he actually lived with her in her house um different ones but eventually in chelsea in london and uh, until the mid 1930s when you know he was he was in his late 20s um and uh, he'd fallen in love with a, a woman in switzerland which is when he was sort of in on the continent after being um, in Austria, he actually went to Geneva University and he met there uh, a woman that he fell in love with called Monique, Monique Poncho de Botton. Botton. Uh, and uh, he brought her back to, to sort of stay with him at his mother's. And his mother was absolutely vile to this girlfriend and um, she uh, kind of cried off and their relationship was was uh, the relationship between Monique and Ian was broken off. Mm -hmm. And um, he, Ian, was strangely sort of um, broken by this. He was, you know, he was, uh, he never sort of expressed um, annoyance, but um, he sort of gave the impression that uh, there is a, a phrase that doesn't actually come to my mind at the moment, that he was going off and he was going to, you know, take women and, you know, do what he wanted with them in, in the future. And, um, you know, that is more or less what he was, He be, what he what he became. I mean, he became uh, a bit of a playboy in the, the late 1930s. He would go over to the to the continent with friends of his who would go to the casinos in just across the, um, the, what we, you know, the English Channel and uh, to a place like Deauville, um, and uh, you know he 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 had a, a lot of lot of women. Um, one of his uh, closest female friends um, was a, a woman called Muriel Wright, who was a, a sort of part-time model, a very beautiful, uh, well, you know, well healed, well, you know, came from a good family woman, uh, and um, she was his sort of on-off girlfriend for for quite some time and uh, he wasn't wasn't very good to her because he had other girlfriends and she was killed in an, air, in an air raid during the second world war and he again was devastated mm -hmm. uh, and one of his colleagues in um, uh, uh, sort of unit that he was um, quite instrumental in setting up called 30 auxiliary unit which was a unit which was designed to sort of go behind enemy enemy lines and collect scientific intelligence material but one of the people who worked in that unit uh said for ian to feel anything uh you've got to die you know it's a bit kind of damning really uh so um 
you know, he was a bit, I suppose you could say, a bit cold in his emotional life. Um, but that had its appeal, for, clearly, for, for some some women. Um, you know, he was also very amusing and, you know, he was rich, debonair, good looking, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, he, he was a, quite a sort of model, uh, if you like, for uh, James Bond. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, that's without going into sort of the, the, the sort of professional background. That's just really on the, on the personal side. Right. And, uh, and so his house on Jamaica is called GoldenEye, and it, it's named after an operation that he was part of in World War II. So what was that operation? And then also, what role did Jamaica play in influencing uh, Ian and James Bond? Um, yeah, Operation GoldenEye during the Second World War was something that Ian Fleming uh, sort of devised and um, really ran from the Admiralty as part of uh, naval intelligence and part of British naval intelligence. And it was really, um, you know, there were different parts to it, but it was largely about um, making sure that there would be, there was a, it was a sort of stage in the war when the, the Battle of the Atlantic was was very paramount and a lot of British convoys were being um, sunk by German submarines. And this, it was very important to, this is why Enigma was very important. It was to get get code books and stuff like that to uh, break the German code, and then you know to to be able to ensure that they knew where the subs were and that sort of thing. But parallel to that, uh, there was a, an operation um, GoldenEye. Yeah, I mean, alongside that, there was the sort of fear that the Germans would, having. Uh, Occupied most of France, they would push through to uh, to Spain, and they would occupy because uh, they had a sort of potential ally in General Franco there, and then they would take the um, the sort of west coast of Spain, and that would be, offer um, opportunities for you know further German naval action against British ships, Allied ships, mm-hmm. uh, American ships as well in in the atlantic and so it was important that if this were to happen that there would be uh stay behind uh um uh, agents within spain uh and this was something that that ian fleming was responsible for sort of organizing i mean you know they had a bit of a leg up because gibraltar in in a southern tip of of um, spain was um, a british colony and uh, remains so and uh, you know so he was able to sort of go there and you know, organize things etc but it you know it was a, a sort of interesting little uh, operation um so uh when he actually got his house in jamaica he remembered this and there were other elements that came into it that um it was near to a place called Oracabesa, which um, I can't actually remember. It means golden something or other in, in uh, Spanish, I think. And uh, so um, he decided that he would call his new house there uh, Goldeneye. And his writing was really kind of, you know, to do with you know, um, his... Uh, experiences during the war. It was built on his experiences in the war and his his um, uh, knowledge of what was going on in uh, mainly Europe, but not totally, you know, obviously there's, there's episodes in the United States, etc. cetera. Um, but um, 
there's a sort of another aspect to it that, you know, Ian felt at home in Jamaica. And Jamaica at the time was was still actually British, uh, I wouldn't say owned, but it was still a British colony. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a sort of old-fashioned place where he kind of, as I say, felt at home. And uh, he was... Um, he was uneasy about some of the things that were happening in, you know, um, in the in the wider world, um, and so um, it sort of became. He was a curious mixture, actually, because he was old-fashioned in a lot of his attitudes, I, but doesn't mean that he was a total reactionary or anything like that. He was actually quite a libertarian. I mean, he right. he. Um, uh, you know, he was in favour of all sorts of, you know, sexual uh, liberation and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, at the same time, so he was um, he was a bit old-fashioned, but at the same time, he had a fascination with the new. He had a fascination with new gadgets. He had a fascination with new objects. He had a fascination. And so this seeped into his writing and you know with the consequences that we all know and you know has been picked up by the films but that was there in in the in the books that you know why one of the reasons why the the bond books are so you know well first of all why they had um they were successful was that they sort of showed uh, a, a kind of new world to Britain that was just coming out of the hardships of the Second World War and that had rationing right until the, the early 50s and et cetera, et cetera. And Bond went out there and, you know, he had these wonderful went places. It was colourful. There was um, kind of new things, new gadgets, new cars, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so that all was had a great appeal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I uh, I, I just uh, finished the books recently. Um, uh, yeah, I was a James Bond fan in the '90s when the GoldenEye video game came out, um, but uh, just got back into it again recently. And the the you know the movies can be corny sometimes, but the books I, I think are really fun. You know, uh, escapist uh, pot boilers, essentially thrillers. I mean, he 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 could really uh, make a writer. I mean, a reader turn the page. Um, but there seems well, to I'm be. I'm glad a- you say that because, of course, you know. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I know about Ian Fleming more than the films, if you like. Mm-hmm. So um, I, you know, I, I know his books pretty well, but you know, actually, much more than I know the films. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, uh, I relate to that, and and of course, as I've already said, you know, he had his training as a journalist, which made him. You know, he he could he could choose his words. He was quite pithy in his in his the way that he wrote, and um, you know he could he could tell a story. I mean, that goes almost without saying. But you know, it it makes for a good a good concoction. And and you're absolutely right. They're 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 very good reads. Yeah, and, and the, but there seems to be a a spectrum of opinions. I think his his own wife called the books pornography, for example. Uh, yeah. So what what are your thoughts on? James Bond's cultural legacy. Obviously, it's massively popular, billion-dollar-plus franchise. 
The last movie, No Time to Die, was, of course, very controversial among fans, although I personally loved it. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. I liked but, it, too. Yeah, and, but I mean, how did Ian Fleming's creation influence the Cold War, or did he, and, and what did he represent about Britain at the time? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an extraordinary phenomenon because, um, you know, his books were good, were agreed, I'm glad to say, and, you know, a lot of other people agree with that. Um, but they were taken up by uh, Eon Productions, by Broccoli and Saltzman, and they became sort of universal things, and, and James Bond became um, more than just somebody in a book. I mean, he became a kind of cultural hero, and, uh, you know, those those Bond movies, you know, have crossed the world, you know, in ways that books obviously couldn't. And they've become a sort of symbol of God. I mean, I mean, you know, they are a symbol of 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 something or other of Britishness to an extent. But that's not the whole story. Um, you know, a certain attitude. Uh, you know, I mean, they're the they're in the tradition of old-fashioned adventure stories. I mean, just to take a slightly different take on it. Um, you know, Ian Fleming was brought up having read, you know, some of those, um, these sort of predecessors of him in that genre, you know, people like Buchan. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, these are adventure stories. They're romances. They're romances, um, you know, that uh, Ian um, James Bond is a kind of represents a force for the good. You know, he... He he, um, you know, fights against the evil. Initially, it was sort of smirch, but it's become much more sort of generic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, lots of um, uh, people who want to take over the world, sort of thing. And um, you know, he does that with panache, and uh, uh, you know, he's gone through different incarnations of being different people playing James Bond, but I think the underlying story is is always there, which is that, you know, James Bond is there to kind of, um, without laboring the point, you know, kind of save 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 the, the Western world, okay, we could say that, um, and get the girl. I mean, you know, his um, kind of, uh, uh, his love life, if you can call it that, it's you know kind of his sex life, I suppose, often often more than that, more than just. I mean, but actually, interestingly, um, you know, it's the sort of thing that the the makers of the films now, and we're talking about the films, play with. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. Bond was a sort of cipher, and um, you mentioned the latest film. You know, I mean, there, you know, Bond is a creature of um, emotion and you know family, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which we. We never actually had before. All right. Uh, great. Well, the, the book is uh, Ian Fleming by Andrew Lysa. Andrew, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to join me. Um, where can people find out more about your work? Well, um, I, oh gosh. I mean, I do have a website, which you can you can go to, um, andrewlysa.co.uk. Um uh, it's a bit out of date. So, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I tweet, um, I, you know, that's a good way to get in touch with me, um, at a lice at one, 
Uh, and, um, you know, I'd be very happy to hear from anybody. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, this book and others are available. You know, get them on from all good booksellers, as they say. Well, thank you so much. A great book. Uh, everyone should go read it. And uh, thanks again. I appreciate your time. All right. All the best. Thank you for tuning in. If you need recommendations for good reads, check out the Ian Fleming books I mentioned. I recommend reading them all in order, but also check out On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder. Snyder has released a new graphic novel version of his book that explores authoritarian governments around the world and signs to watch for creeping fascism. Okay, before we go, let's check in with our senior influencer correspondent, Bradford. Hey everybody, it's Brad and little baby influencer himself, Mr. Oliver Beams. Um, It is approaching Christmas and I just thought I would, you know, um, show off some of my vocal skills. I've been taking lessons recently and um, I just wanted to let you guys know that I'm I'm really improving and I just want to show it off. So uh, here we go. A one, a two. A one and two and three and four and chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Um, Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow. We'll find it hard to sleep tonight. Merry Christmas, everybody. Hope that influenced you. Thank you for that report, Bradford. That's it for this episode. Thanks for watching. Stay tuned for new episodes of Well Read once a month. You can find this show on YouTube and the Pasadena Media TV channels and streaming apps. I'm Justin Chapman signing off. Learn more about my work at justindouglaschapman.com and sign up to receive my email newsletter to get updates on what I'm working on at justinchapman.substack.com slash subscribe. And remember, a life well read is a life well spent. So go read a book. Till next time.